And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. You are the power, and you do not need anybody's permission. He's the only guy that ever crawled out of a grave where people didn't go, oh, ah! Don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OutofLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, we have the smartest man in the room. That is a quote by Judge Andrew Napolitano talking about a featured guest whose name is Tom Woods. Tom Woods is incredible. He is somebody who, when we talk, we're not going to talk about the metaphysics. We're going to talk about purely intellectual ideas, thoughts. I believe that the metaphysical and spiritual manifests itself in the intellectual in some capacities because if it allows us to become empowered and explore freedom in, in a very profound way, I believe that that is part of the spiritual aspects of our evolution. So Tom is amazing, and again, every time I talk to him, they, I become smarter. Someone to care for, to be there for, I have Tom Woods. Someone to do for, model through for, you have Tom Woods. <laughs> I sing that song in the shower, and my wife's like, oh my God, this is the reason why I have no problem getting away from you. The judge will grant me divorce in a second. Before we begin tonight's show, I just want to give a special shout-out to Miss Cara Elder, Miss Jenny Lamessa, and Miss Lisa McNorton, uh, three of our amazing listeners, and Flickeron, of course. Welcoming to the program is an individual who I have a tremendous amount of respect for. His name is Mr. Tom E. Woods. He's a senior fellow at the Mrs. Institute. And he's also author of 12 books recently, Real Descent to Libertarian Sets Fire to the Index Cards and this Card of Allowable Opinion. This individual has been seen all over the media. He's a passionate advocate of not only personal freedom, but economic freedom. You can learn more about him by going to his website at OurEnemyTheFed.com. Mr. Woods, great honor to have you with us, sir. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. So... You've been out there for a lot of years talking about freedom, talking about economic freedom. What do you see as the greatest threat to personal liberty in the world today? You know, I could list a whole bunch of terrible trends going on in the world, but none of them would be possible if people thought about them the right way. And that may sound Pollyanna, uh, like a Pollyanna approach, but I really believe it. I think people, in a way, are fastening the shackles to their own ankles because they've bought into a worldview that encourages them to believe that the people who rule over them just have their welfare in mind. And these people are where they are because of merit, because they're smart, capable, committed to the public good. And what we need to do is give them our confidence and our resources and, and stop questioning, uh, questioning them all the time. You know, they, they, they're doing their best to solve a lot of entrenched problems. If you have that mentality, then it becomes 
first of all, impossible to understand the world correctly, but secondly, you get in the habit of constantly yielding them more and more and more, more power over different aspects of civil society, more power over matters that ought to be left to the freedom of individuals. There's no real stopping it. And so I rather encourage a more skeptical approach to understanding the state and what it's really up to. Okay. And there are some that will say, all right, well, if we're going to have any form of government, there should be no government. Some people who believe in the idea of anarchy, the idea that, okay, well, there should fundamentally be no person that another individual should trust because once they, you trust a person to govern you, you're surrendering your power, you're surrendering part of your liberty. So what is the comparable difference, do you think, between anarchism and a limited government that libertarians believe in? And theoretically speaking, is libertarianism fundamentally um, difficult to accomplish unless you have people that are constantly held in checks and balances. I mean, can, liberty, can a form of limited government only be successful if you have a public that is internally vigilant? Well, that may be the reason that limited government just doesn't work, is that there's no particular reason for government to want to limit itself, to, to say to the government, well, here, we're going to give you the power to initiate force on everybody. We're going to give you the power to collect taxes according to whatever level you think you need or can get away with, frankly. And just make sure you don't abuse that or start grasping for additional powers. Well, why not? Why would I not? It, wouldn't it benefit me as a as somebody in government to grab more and more and more power, especially if I just tell the public that I'm just trying to help them? Yeah, don't don't worry about that housing boom and bust. That had nothing to do with us, right? We were just innocent bystanders. Or don't worry that we just destroyed Libya. You know, hey, nobody's perfect. I mean, you have to overlook that kind of stuff. But I don't think it. I don't think it does work in the long run. Uh, I, I suppose if you were extremely vigilant, but the the, the vigilant population is going to be one to two percent, if even that. The rest of the people are trying to live their lives, and it's hard to blame them for that. So I would not say. Now, I, I mean, obviously, look, if I'm speaking to a group of people who are just getting into these ideas. I wouldn't tr scare them away with this anarchism stuff. But the fact is, if you're a libertarian, you believe in non-aggression. You do not, doesn't mean you're a pacifist, but it means you don't initiate aggression against anybody. And so the, the state in itself, in all its behavior, involves aggression, at least implicitly. Try disobeying it and see what happens to you. Try not paying and see what happens to you. It's based on aggression. So there are a lot of libertarians who say that maybe that means we can't have taxation. Maybe it means we can't have monopolistically provided services. Uh, so there are people, myself included. Now, I mean, I'm t <laughs> you would need 87 podcast episodes to get into this. <laughs> but who believe that the state itself is a scourge on mankind, can't be trusted. You can't keep it limited. It's utopian to think you can. Instead, we should think about alternatives. Are there? Uh, we all know that the private sector can give us shoes and food and electronics and all kinds of amazing wonders. But we say, well, but when it comes to this, well, certainly we need a, a violent monopoly. I'm not so sure that's the case. Um, it's harder to see how a free market would work in some areas than in others. But in almost anything you can think of, it keeps showing how superior it is. There's a reason why in the United States so many contracts between employers and employees say that if we have a dispute, we're going to take it to an arbitrator who is, uh, you know, with the uh, certified by the American Arbitration Association, because we know that within six months we'll get a resolution that tries to make both sides happy. 
that's that's what a good arbitrator does. A good mediator tries to do precisely that. And they get results quickly, inexpensively, in a way that makes people feel like their side was heard. Because if they don't, then they don't get repeat business. They're not a protected monopolist who can just hand down unreasonable decisions and there's no there's, there's no recourse. So, and I have a friend who's who's been in a legal battle. He's 100% in the right. It's it's laughable how in the right he is. And he's spent uh, $100,000 so far defending himself. And the case has been going on for three years. Now, this kind of thing goes on in the public sector all the time. And nobody's, nobody really says anything about it. I mean, if could you imagine if the private sector provided legal services and it took years and years and years and years and people were impoverished in the process, we would be up in arms about it. People would be screaming about it. But when it's the government doing it, not aware, well, you know, hey, nobody's perfect. I mean, we, we hold it to such a low standard. Whereas with health care, people say health care is very expensive. So we never hear the end of it. Oh, health care, capitalism, which is it's not capitalism's fault, by the way, but most people think it is. And they say, oh, my gosh, uh, health care costs are so high. And they scream and scream and scream. But when the state makes getting justice impossibly expensive, not a word, because we're all conditioned to say, well, these are all self uh, these are all selfless public servants just doing the best they can, and who are we to criticize them? It's awful. It's it makes it impossible to it makes it impossible to uh, guarantee a free society in the long run if people are going to act like that. Do you believe that based on if you look at the conditioning of kids in schools throughout several generations, do you believe that there is one big collective cult of the state that is occurring? Where if you look at certain belief systems for people, whoever they want to engage in, they, they go to um, a ceremony, they'll participate in their own belief systems, and they'll see symbols, and they'll hear hymns, and they'll engage, and they'll feel good. Do you think that government itself has become a big cult of onto itself, where it's putting its symbols all over the place to the point where it's actually been to indoctrinate a lot more people? I think that is what it is, and I, I don't think that everybody who participates in it is fully aware of it. But in a way, that makes it more insidious. I mean, every sporting event has to have a military demonstration. Really? I mean, and of course, the conservatives out there who are also responsible for where we are generally, you know, tip their hats and are all too happy at the military displays. But that's that's not a healthy society where there's a cult of the military everywhere you look and you're told well, sir, where would you be without the military? Why, you'd be speaking, and then they list a half a dozen languages. and It's all preposterous. None of these things were going to happen. Saddam Hussein was not going to... You didn't even hear of Saddam Hussein until these people started telling you what a terrible yeah. guy he was. No one cared. No one knew what he... What he made no difference to them. Um, Iraq, under Saddam, you could you could go get a drink. You could you could choose your career. I mean, women had, had rights. and I mean, But... He he ran a. I mean, in other words, Saudi Arabia doesn't have any of those things, but we don't hear those people demonized because they're <laughs> friends of the regime. So the whole thing is it's an insult to people's intelligence. But you're right; it's everywhere in in the classrooms. We've got the U.S. presidents up on the wall, looking down benignly upon the children. And and I often say, imagine if Walmart ran the schools, and instead of presidents, they had current and prior Walmart CEOs up on the walls looking at the kids, people would be up in arms. They'd say, what kind of crazy cult is this? 
But when it's the president's, well, we stand up and salute. And, you know, because, again, these people, why, where would we be without such and such program that they implemented? Because there certainly weren't any unintended consequences of those programs. They all they they all have exactly the results we predict for them. (sighs) (laughs) Well, there are a lot of individuals who say, "Okay, well, the only way we can really have real change is well, we have to get our, our guys in office. We have to make change within the system." And I don't know, Mr. Woods. I I think that there's changes theoretically impossible within the system because the, it seems like they own the entire system. And not only did they own the political system, but monetary system. You have this incredible site, our enemy, the Fed. I mean, if you control the nation's money supply, how much more wiggle room can the people have? I mean, once you control their money supply. So from your perspective, do you think that you have to have a different consciousness outside for which this current consciousness has been created to force meaningful change? Do you have to think completely outside the system, realize the system is bad, and have a whole new approach to, I don't know, evolving and seeing the world beyond the walls for which the government and the control society has been created in and and antithesis consciousness. Let's take Ron Paul for an example. Now, he was a congressman for 11 terms, and it's true he didn't get bills passed. And, you know, in terms of that kind of metric, he wasn't successful. But in terms of the metric that we ought to be looking at, he was very successful. He got people thinking in a new way and he created things. He created he. He created a cadre of young people who will never look at the world the same way. And that has to be step one. But, of course, just getting new people in this thing is not going to do it. And in the meantime, it can be frustrating for an individual because the individual may think, what is there that I as an individual can do? I'm up against this behemoth. Seriously, what does Woods here expect me to go do? And the answer is I'm not saying you personally have to put everything right. But I am saying, and this has been kind of a theme of mine recently. There's a book by a fellow named Harry Brown called How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World. And his point in there is that even in situations where things seem hopeless politically, you can still navigate that world to find a lot of personal freedom for yourself. You shouldn't feel like everything is doomed and there's no hope. So, for example, I did an episode of the Tom Woods Show recently, um, which is at tomspodcast.com. Awesome, by the way. Thank you. In which I went through and talked about ways that you can kind of build, you can secede in in some ways. So, for instance, a lot of people are unhappy with American health care. They don't like Obamacare and they don't like the high, they don't like the high insurance rates and they don't, and they weren't particularly pleased with American health care before Obamacare. So what do you just do? Wring your hands and throw them up in the air? Well, no, there are a couple of things you can do, even under Obamacare. You can use I, – I gave – I had a guest on from something called Liberty Health Share. It's a health sharing service where it's strictly speaking not insurance. If they called it that, they'd be subject to insurance regulation. But rather, it's a very large group of people who are subscribers, and the idea is that they share each other's expenses instead of actually paying a premium. Their, their premium really just goes directly to pay somebody else's bill. And because there are so many of them, they can negotiate with hospitals to get low rates. But it's not insurance. It's, the, okay, somebody had this surgery, so this month your money is going to pay that guy's surgery. And then next month, his thing will go to pay your thing. And people are getting rates that are, I don't know, half, a quarter of what they used to pay. And they're able to do that by just seceding from the system with something like Liberty Health Or I had a guy, Dr. Josh Umber, in Wichita, Kansas, on my show, 
one of the best guests I've ever had. This is a guy who has a basically like a monthly subscription. He doesn't do Medicare. He doesn't do insurance. He just does you pay me a monthly fee and I will give you it'll be like Costco. Uh, one monthly fee gets you all these benefits. So I, I can do minor surgeries. I can do stitches. I can do blood work. I can get you rock bottom, super, super, super cheap prescriptions. I can do house calls. I can do a Skype call. I'll get on the phone with you. All these sorts of things all included in one extremely low monthly price that's based on the person's age. And, pe- and this kind of cash-only service is really catching on. So again, in, instead of just saying, oh, well, I guess we're all doomed. There's nothing we can do. There are things you can do. And so likewise with education. Yeah, I think a lot of education is just flat-out indoctrination. So, well, we have the homeschool movement. So, for example, Ron Paul, yeah, it's true. He, he didn't single-handedly change the education system. He just created his own. <laughs> that's, that's not a small thing. RonPaulHomeschool.com. So now you have a, a homeschool program where kids, not only are they going to learn, you know, they'll learn history, they'll learn the traditional subjects, but they're also going to learn things that will help them to find their own freedom. They're going to learn how to start their own small business. They're going to learn how to write advertising copy. If you can do that, you are not ever going to be poor. Um, they're going to be taught how to use um, YouTube, how to do public speaking, how to express the ideas that are in their minds. You're not going to get that in a typical typical school you know, chews you up and spits you out when you're 18 and leaves you there with no idea what you're supposed to do. What's your niche and how do you build a business and how do you support yourself? Well, we don't know. Just go to college for four years and sort that out somehow. No one gives you the practical nuts and bolts. Ron Paul's doing that. And again, this is just a way of these people who follow his curriculum have just seceded from the system and created freedom for themselves. It's awesome. I mean, we have a lot of respect for Dr. Paul. We've had him on our show twice and I love what he's doing. Oh, great. And yeah. the next question I want to ask you about is with the difference between volunteerism and forced cooperation. There are some individuals who say, okay, well, you know what? You know, some people have the right to free health care. Some people have the, deserve a right to free education. Some people deserve a right to do this and that. And they're like claiming that they have a right to all these different things. So what is the comparable difference do you see between forced cooperation and volunteerism? And can some of these ideals for some of these political ideologies that may seem um, strange to some people, can they theoretically speaking become a reality if collective society becomes more inclined to do it on a voluntary basis? Like you talked about Liberty Healthcare. People are more willing to help each other out because they see it as beneficial, but they're doing it voluntarily. But whereas a forced cooperation they're being taxed or they're being forced to participate. So what is the difference between forced cooperation and volunteerism in terms of all these other political ideals? And what do you think are the f- are actual fundamental rights that people have as compared to what they believe that they have a right to? Well, I think the idea that something is desirable and also that's that same thing is a right. These are two different things. There are plenty of desirable things that are not a right. So uh, we would all enjoy... Uh, owning a Mercedes, but that doesn't make it a right. So where, how do we, well, if you say, well, I'm just saying that fundamental things are a right. Okay. Well, how do we know what's fundamental? I mean, what that can change because as society gets wealthier, our expectations increase. So maybe today, uh, kidney dialysis is not a fundamental right, but maybe tomorrow it is. I mean, so if it's a right, if it's a, if it's a natural right, 
that is natural to you because you're a human being. It always has to be the same because you're because human human beings are the same. So and moreover, if it's a natural right that that you enjoy just by virtue of being human, well, then it has to be a right that everybody can enjoy simultaneously and in the same way, because if we're all human beings and we all have natural rights, then those natural rights ought to be able to be exercised at all times or they're not natural. Then they're just artificial. Uh, they're, they're just uh, artificial creation. So, for instance, if I were to if you and I were on a desert island and I were to say to you, uh, Ryan, I'm now going to enforce upon you my right to health care. What would that look like? I mean, what would I would I throw a coconut at you until you <laughs> looked at my wounds? What would that actually look like? It would involve basically conscripting you into my service. And if you were to say, well, look, now I'm going to enforce my right to transportation on you, would that mean you'd have to climb on my back and I'd have to walk around and take you places? Obviously, these are – because if that were the case, then we're not exercising your right to transportation. Uh, we're not both exercising that right in the same way. I'm giving the transportation and you're taking it or the right to health care. Well, that means I got to force you to do it while I receive it. Whereas the right to life really just means it doesn't mean the right to be it really means the right to be not killed is really what the right to life means. Well, we can both exercise the right to be not killed at the same time. So there's no contradiction involved, whereas there is an obvious contradiction in both of us. If we both tried to enforce our right to health care on each other, we just beat each other to a pulp and then we'd really need health care. That'd be the end of it. But whereas if. If we're dealing with something like the right to property, well, that basically is just the right not to be stolen from. Well, the two of us can both be not stolen from at the same time without contradiction. So that's how we know these things are natural rights because they can be exercised by everybody at all times and in all places. Now, the thing is, you may say, all right, Woods, that's a lot of fancy philosophizing you got going on there. But the fact is we got a lot of people with a lot of needs and, you know, OK, maybe we don't call them rights, but they're something. How do you propose that we handle them? And for for instance, even even just a, a right to a higher wage, because of course, if you had a higher wage, you could you could use it to buy all these things that you need, like health care and whatever else. So people would say maybe people have a right to that. And I would say that if we try to enforce that kind of thing, where well, we don't like that there are so many poor people in the world, so let's just force the wages up. If we had done that during the industrial revolution, we would have destroyed industrialism just as it was getting started, and we would still be living a hand-to-mouth existence. It's not enough to say something's desirable, so therefore we'll legislate it into existence. If that were the case, there'd be no poverty anywhere in the world. We could just legislate it out of existence. We could just call Bangladesh and tell them, good news, poverty is over. All you got to do is pass some laws. If that were the case, why would there be poverty anywhere in the world? And the reason you have poverty is that you have a... in most cases, the reason you have poverty is that you have a society that's not very productive. It doesn't produce enough stuff to give everybody a good standard of living. So you need to make the society more productive, which means investment. And the more you just grab money and grab money and tax and tax, the less investment there can be, so the slower the economic progress will be. So the main approach has to be make the whole thing bigger and then remove any constraints that are making goods more expensive. There are all kinds of reasons that we have uh, health care that's much too expensive in America. Some of it has to do with our insurance system, which was artificially encouraged by government in the first place. There are a lot of things that we can be thinking about doing, but just simply saying we'll legislate it into existence 
leads to all kinds of other problems. As I say, if it were that easy, we would legislate uh, uh, prosperity into existence around the world. What you need is to, sh to, in effect, free the market to allow for investment, to make the economy more productive, to raise people's wages. That's the only thing that does raise people's wages. So now in terms of how do you provide um, goods to people in, in great need, well, it so happens, and I've cited this in one of my, my book, Rollback, it so happens that it takes $5 to the government to get $1 to a needy person. I mean, Jeez. that is a pretty rotten turnaround. Terrible. So it's not like we would even need to replace dollar for dollar all the government programs. Uh, secondly, in the old days, before the state really got involved in healthcare, every physician knew that it was part of his calling that he was to give free and low-cost medical care to people who needed it. Everybody knew that. And then suddenly we had this bureaucratic nightmare, and now it becomes impossible for physicians. They hate the system. We got more and more doctors saying they just don't want to do it anymore because there's so much regulation. It makes it impossible for them to have the kind of doctor-patient relationship they once did. Um, and then in terms of education, well, the big story about education that we've only just discovered over the past 15 or 20 years is that unbeknownst to almost all Western researchers all over the world, in, in some of the most remote and poorest places in the world, low-cost private schools have been educating more children more effectively and more cheaply than whatever state-run schools exist in these places. And this is the work of James Tooley at the University of Newcastle who discovered this and it's, it's a story that was completely not being told. You would think these parents, no way they can afford a private education for their kids. They can barely feed themselves. But it turns out they can. If you have schools that are efficiently run and that get results, parents will send their kids to them. So the amazing story is that low-cost private schools in the developing world are, are educating far, far more children than even the government schools with all the advantages are. I mean, the government schools are so-called free and yet still these low-cost private schools are outperforming them. If that can be done in the developing world, then surely in the developed world, which is the next thing, he's trying to bring efficiently run schools to the Western world without all the waste and the nonsense. So we're, we're selling ourselves short if we think that our only option is the status quo or everybody goes uneducated, or the status quo or we're going to be stepping over corpses on our way to work. This is... a uh, extremely narrow way that unfortunately we've been conditioned to think. If I look at the way things are in our culture and society, it seems that I, I think about the way the American people are right now. I think about the witch in Hansel and Gretel. It gets the kids fat so they'll taste delicious. So they're being set up to have a great big fall. And I wonder if there is a collaboration with the Federal Reserve to bring that system to the point where people are so dependent on the government, then they crash the system. They have that big event that Dr. Paul and Peter Schiff have been talking about. And then we come to this major crossroads where people either become completely dependent on the government because we have a shortage of food or we have a currency crisis and things are really getting scary, or do people kind of realize that they, their faith within the system, their consent to be governed, their faith within the government is shattered, so they move towards a freedom-based system. So from your perspective, based on how you see trends in America going, how do you think the public will, will go? How do you think the world will go? after this big event happens that uh, Dr. Paul and Peter Schiff have been predicting, and even you've been predicting, it seems, at some degree. Well, let's just remember that when Otto von Bismarck introduced modern social insurance and the welfare state as we know it, he was pretty blunt about it. He did want people to be dependent on the state. 
because then they'll be less likely to rise up against it. You don't bite the hand that feeds you. So let's bear in mind that it's not uh, entirely without foundation to suggest that this may be part of what motivates these people. But what I don't agree with is I don't think that they deliberately want to crash the system because nobody can predict exactly how that's going to play out. And the fact is that during the 2008 crash, the major, major iconic investment banks came crashing down. It is not the case that uh, everybody just walked away laughing all the way to the bank. A lot of people were ruined. Major institutions were completely ruined. Secondly, these crashes make the government look bad. It makes, peop- it, it makes it look like they don't know what they're doing because they couldn't have prevented this. So I don't believe that that's something they would deliberately want to engineer, first because it makes them look bad, secondly because once something like that starts, it's very hard to control it. So I think uh, if we do wind up with another uh, very bad uh, you know, very bad economic consequences, it's hard to know where that will go, but it seems likely to me that they'll just try the same kinds of things. Well, we'll spend a lot more money, we'll print a lot more money, because I think they're out of ideas. They don't know, uh, and, and moreover, the general public has been taught that we have a capitalist system, so if we have a disaster like this, it must be the fault of so-called capitalism. It never occurs to them to say, well, maybe this totally anomalous Federal Reserve System that's constantly intervening in the economy, tinkering, tinkering, tinkering. Maybe this thing is planting seeds in the economy that that sprout up and, and, and give us all these bad results. Maybe this thing, by encouraging entrepreneurs to invest where they otherwise wouldn't and encourages an investment that wouldn't take place otherwise, maybe it's creating an unsustainable arrangement of resources that eventually crashes. People don't think that way. They just think, oh, capitalism failed. If they can't fit it on a bumper sticker, then most people aren't interested in trying to figure out what's going on. So the best thing we can do, and the only thing I know how to do, is to spread the word about the the real reality. So I even have a, how about this, get this, a free, free ebook on this exact subject, and it's actually called our enemy, the Fed. How about that? So I have I have it over at ourenemythefed.com. Will not take you long to read it, but you will. Uh, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but you'll want to talk to all your friends about the Fed a lot. And so, um, I, think- I I would urge you to bear in mind that maybe you don't want to do that all the time. <laughs> if, you, if you want to keep them as friends. Well, I think about the quote from Dr. Paul. It says, "People cannot unhear what you've told them." So I, I do it. I tell my family and friends about this all the time. They're sending out messages, forward messages. You know, here's a joke of the day. I'm like, hey, by the way, you know, our system's in crisis, and you get the strange looks. But hey, you know, if it helps one person, maybe you have to solve the, the world one problem at a time, one person at a time. Yeah, yeah, there you have it, Mr. Tom Woods, Mr. Thomas E. Woods. I want to thank you so much for being with us today again. Mr. Woods is a senior fellow at the Mrs. Institute and host of the Tom Woods Show, which, by the way, I learned about and listened to several times. It's incredible. You can learn more about Tom by going to his website at OurEnemyTheFed.com. Mr. Woods, great honor to have you with us. I'm so glad you are standing up for freedom and engaging the world today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth. Special thanks to Mr. Thomas E. Woods, phenomenal guest. And special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Ms. Carrie O'Connor, Ms. Lisa Caza, and Ms. Constance Dellis. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. Until the next time we meet, my friends, 
I wish upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>